Well, I've asked Paul to bring out this table that's going to display this rather large gift to remind you that there's only 77 days until Christmas. (laughs) Get on it, okay? Well, one of the traditions that comes with Christmas is the giving and the receiving of gifts. Uh, It's a great tradition. And one of the things I want to ask you this morning is, what do you enjoy more? Looking for and discovering and buying and giving a gift, a special gift for a loved one? Or do you enjoy more receiving a special gift from a loved one? Well, when you're a kid, I think it's the receiving that you're all focused on, right? It's the getting the gifts. It's the receiving the gifts. It's, it's all about the gifts that you get. But I've noticed as I grew up, uh, I began to take more joy in the giving side of this equation. In looking for, discovering, thinking about the person I'm buying a gift for and what's that really, really special gift and, and, and making that happen for them. I can remember in college, it was kind of that moment of revelation when I really first started getting into the giving part of that. I was thinking about uh, Christmas was coming up, and I was trying to figure out a really nice gift to give to my dad. And uh, my dad and his family are related to a famous Western artist named Charles M. Russell. And so when my dad was growing up, they were always, uh, you know, really into his artwork and, and, and seeing what kinds of art he had produced. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if I could buy my dad a really, really nice print of one of Charles Russell's paintings. And then I went and priced one of those with a frame, and I went to my mom and said, wouldn't it be really cool if we could give my dad a really, really awesome print of a painting in a nice frame? And my dad, really, it was really one of those home run kind of gifts. My dad loved that gift, and he still displays that gift in his office uh, to this day. Now, <clears throat> The process of giving and receiving gifts, a a gift is not complete until a person receives the gift. Would you you agree with that? It's not really a gift until that person receives what you're giving to them. And it's interesting, uh, uh, come Christmas time, especially for you parents, have you ever, you know, gotten something pretty big for one of your children? Like maybe you went out one year and you bought a a great, uh, like, PlayStation or Xbox gaming system. And you are giving that to one of your children. And, and if you're a wise parent, you don't give that gift until the very end. And so, so because if you give that gift at the beginning of the morning, then, then that kid is paying attention to no one else other than his Xbox or his PlayStation and ready to hook it up. And so have you, when you've given that great gift to a child, have you ever had the child open the presents and go, eh, it's a PlayStation. It's an Xbox. Nah, don't really want it. Has that ever happened? No, right? Or the other, equa- the other part of that would be, have you ever given your child a gift like that? And your child has looked up to you and said, Oh, great father and mother, ones in whom I have great esteem, who I am not worthy of your love. I am not worthy of this great gift that you've given to me. Therefore, I'm going to set that aside, and then I'm going to earn the gift that you've given to me. And so, therefore, esteemed mother and father... I will clean up all the trash from opening the presents, and I will take down all the ornaments and pack them neatly away and put them in the basement, and and I will fix the great Christmas feast, and I will serve it, and I will clean up after the meal, and and then I will go outside and take down all the Christmas lights and package them away and put them away, and, and then I will come back in and ask you, what else do I need to do to earn this incredible gift that you've given to me? Has that ever happened to you? 
No, right? You would die. You would, you would fall over and faint if your child ever did that, wouldn't you? Especially moms. Like, yeah, you're going to cook a meal? No way. <clears throat> so again, but the process of giving a gift, the gift is not complete until the person has received the gift. And we worship and we serve a generous God, a God who gives us many, many gifts for our benefit and for our blessing. And I would say there's no greater gift than the gift of salvation that God gives to us. And Paul, in this letter to the Galatians, he is trying to help us understand what does the gift of salvation look like and just exactly what is that gift. What are we going to, what's that gift involved or what's it, it, it about? And I think there's a really great definition that he gives, not in Galatians, but in Ephesians. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, this is Paul's maybe most clearest, his most simplest explanation of the gift of salvation. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, there's a couple of really key words in that scripture passage that is up there. One of those words is grace. We need to really understand what does Paul mean by grace? What is God's grace that has saved us? And Doug spent quite a bit of time last week speaking about grace, the freedom that we have through grace. And and grace, as we understand it, is the work of salvation that has been accomplished by Christ on our behalf. This is not anything that we can do or earn on our own abilities. Only Christ could do this for us, and he has done it. And this is God's richest gift of grace. And Doug defined grace in this way that you maybe can remember, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. So that's grace. Now what is faith? Faith is also a key word in this passage. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. What is faith? Well, faith is initiated by God as well. All through Scripture we see that people have faith in God because God is the one who initiates the relationship. John defines it maybe best in a very simple statement in his letter in 1 John. He says, we love because he first loved us. So God initiates our faith, but it's not complete until we accept this gift that God has given us, grace and faith. So what does that look like? Well, it's believing and receiving this work for ourselves. The, uh, Paul read earlier in the service from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He didn't know I was going to share my message. Let's look at that again, Romans 10, 9. Believing and receiving this work for ourselves. It says, if you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's receiving by faith the gift that God has given to us. So in the book of Galatians, Paul is asking, uh, do we really have freedom in Christ? Is the gift just this gift that comes through the work of Christ, or is there more that's added upon that? Do we really have freedom in Christ, or are we slaves still to the law? That's the crux of the issue of the letter. So as we continue this morning in our study of Galatians, uh, we need to recognize that in our freedom, we cannot disagree on the subject of the gospel. It's so important. For if we don't get the gospel right, then we turn the good news into the bad news. And that's not good. So when we come to these first two uh, chapters in the book of Galatians, Paul is battling over the subject of freedom in Christ. And it was a battle worth fighting for. Paul knew that we can never allow anyone to mess with the message of the gospel. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ. 
You don't need to do anything else. In fact, there is nothing else we can do in order to be saved. There are simply no other requirements. It's God's work and it's God's work alone. Therefore, there is nothing that we can add to it or there is nothing that we can do to accomplish it. Again, the gospel that Paul preached was grace through faith in Christ alone. The gospel that these false brothers that we hear about in this letter are preaching was grace through faith in Christ. They were preaching that. But then they also said, you also need to be circumcised in order for God to validate that gift. It's not enough to receive the gift. You have to be circumcised. And Paul is fighting to say, no, that is not necessary for the gift of salvation. If we require someone to do something, it's no longer a gift. It becomes a payment or it becomes a validation of something else. And so in this, in this part, in this, in this chapter, uh, we're looking at this morning, Paul is establishing that he is in partnership with the leaders of Jerusalem. He's not out on his own preaching his own gospel, that he is, his gospel is the same thing as what the leaders in Jerusalem are preaching. And so even though he was called to a different mission field than Jerusalem, the good news for Paul was, even though he's acting independently of the church in Jerusalem, he was proclaiming a gospel that was identical to the one that the leaders in Jerusalem were preaching in terms of content. So he found out that the church in Jerusalem were partners in the gospel, and it was something for him to celebrate. It's also something for us to celebrate, that we too are called in the freedom that we have in Christ to be partners in the gospel. So I want to take a closer look at the second chapter. And the first thing we need to understand about in terms of our freedom in Christ through faith is that it still requires partnership in the mission. Freedom is not a freedom to go do our own individual thing, no matter with any relationship to anyone else. It's a freedom that God calls us to in a partnership in the body of Christ, that literally, as believers, that we're connected to one another through the gift of salvation and in other ways as well. Look at verse 8 of this passage. It says, For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, Peter's uh, an apostle to the Jewish people, was also at work in me, to, he's saying, Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. And so in this passage here, Paul's testifying that he's been proclaiming the gospel message for 14 years uh, without Jerusalem's approval. But now the Judaizers have invaded his uh, mission field, and they're preaching a gospel message that's different than his, and so it's time for him to go to Jerusalem and have a chat with the leaders of the church. It's time to see, are there differences? And if there are differences, what are they? And so Paul comes to Jerusalem not for their approval, for his calling to share the the gospel. That came directly from Christ when Paul encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, but literally to submit evidence of what he is proclaiming. And it was important that they come together and figure out, are we on the same page in terms of the content of this message? And so the the meeting in Jerusalem becomes kind of a check each other out and, and, and see if we're there together. It's time to figure out if there are differences, well, what are they? And it's also a time to avoid any unnecessary misunderstanding and and any possible rift that might come between Jerusalem and between Paul. Paul wants to work together with with these folks in Jerusalem. And Paul has to do this for the message of the gospel is the main thing. There's nothing else that's more important in his eyes. And they have to be proclaiming the same message. They have to be applying the same message. And because of that, freedom in Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ, must work in real life. 
This freedom that we read about in Galatians, the freedom that they were talking about, that we sometimes talk about, uh, it can't just be a theological discussion. It has to be a real question. Does freedom really work in the church? Does it really work in real relationships? Does it work in my, in my life in the way that I come in contact with other people? And so, uh, you know, how important is it? And so Paul takes this other guy with him. We're told about Titus goes with him to Jerusalem. And why does he take this guy with him? He does it because he's not playing games. Uh, his gospel that he's been proclaiming has been impacting people all over the Greek world, the non-Jewish part of the world. And Titus is, is an example. He's like type A, example A of, what, of the result of Paul's uh, preaching. And Titus, we're told, is a Greek, which means he's not a Jew. He's not circumcised. And yet uh, he's a brother by faith in Christ. And so Paul brings this guy named Titus with him for the leaders in Jerusalem to be able to hear his testimony, to examine his faith, uh, for them to, to realize, well, this guy does believe the same thing we, that we believe. He, we see evidence of, God, of Christ in him through the Holy Spirit. We see uh, the fruit of the Spirit. We see gifts in his life. And, and so they're able to look at him and say, well, he's not Jewish. He's not circumcised. And yet... He believes the same thing that we believe, and there's evidence of Christ at work in his life. So he was living proof that circumcision and the Mosaic regulations are not necessary for salvation. And that's the freedom that Paul is standing for. And Titus is like the best case of that experience. And so the question is, will Titus be forced by the leaders in Jerusalem to become circumcised, or won't he? And there's no better way of getting at the real issue than to bring a real person. You know, it's one thing to talk about something like in theological terms, but when you have a real person that's standing in front of you, it it has to be dealt with in a real way. And so when he got there, these false brothers, the Judaizers, who'd gone on ahead into some other places that Paul had already preached, there were some of those people in Jerusalem as well, and they were demanding that Titus needed to be circumcised. And Paul's view is that they were deceitful. They were fraudulent. They were off track of what the true gospel message was. And Paul's not going to give in to these people. Titus was not going to be circumcised. He knew he was right according to Paul's view. And and it's impossible to practice, in his view, legalism and true Christianity at the same time. And today we ought to be thankful that Paul stood up for what he stood up for. Because I'm guessing that we, if we have any people that have Jewish heritage in this congregation, it's probably a pretty small minority that would. And so the rest of us are here, have faith in Christ, because Paul was willing to stand for freedom in Christ and to not require circumcision and to not require that people obey the Jewish food laws. And so he stood for this freedom. Faith came first. Circumcision was not needed in order to be saved. And as believers, we too have freedom from the law as the way of salvation. Not freedom to obey God and not freedom to follow God's laws, but freedom, meaning we're not bound to that in order to be saved any longer. We're saved from the external ceremonies, the regulations as a way to salvation. Because Christ has borne the curse of our sin upon himself, the curse of the disobedience from the law, which God requires all to obey, but which none of us are able to keep perfectly. And so therefore, Paul was free to say no to this message that these other guys were preaching. Circumcision was not needed, and therefore it wasn't required. 
So was the message the same? Was his message the same as the leaders in Jerusalem? And though we may have different audiences and methods, the message of the gospel is the same. We can never afford to lose this. Uh, As we see what's going on in this letter to the Galatians, there's another place in the New Testament that talks about the very same things that are happening. The book of Acts basically gives a record of these same kinds of conversations. And in Acts chapter 15, Paul, uh, Peter, one of the leaders in Jerusalem, addresses the group declaring that God makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, saving them both by faith and granting both of them, both of these groups, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the sign of true faith. And his conclusion was that this is only by God's grace through faith, nothing else added to that. And so as we read the book of Acts, this kind of the power of this message began to spread and, and, and take hold in, in the early church. And many, many, many people came to faith because of the gospel, the good news. And it was solely to God's grace through faith. So freedom requires partnership in the gospel. But freedom in Christ through faith also requires harmony in personal relationships. It requires harmony. So we're told in verse 9, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. So Paul was being welcomed as a brother in Christ by the leaders in Jerusalem. And when the right hand of fellowship is offered to him, it's not a sign of approval, but it's a gesture of unity, of fellowship. And in fact, it was more than that. It was a solemn promise of friendship and and a mark of partnership that we're in this proclamation of the gospel together so there was personal harmony here but it's also interesting to look at that verse verse 9 where it talks about paul and peter and james and john think about this these four guys would write 21 of the 27 writings that we have in the new testament and if we read all of their writings we would see that they agree on the basics of the gospel message Not only that, they agree on what that looks like to live out that message in our lives. And so they were committed to personal harmony in their relationships, in the gospel and in the ways of faith. See, we can't find unity in the mission. Their message was the same. They were called to share the same message of the gospel. But what was interesting is their audiences were different. Their mission fields were different. So God gave them the same calling in terms of message, but a different calling in terms of who they were supposed to reach with that message, and there was harmony in that calling. Now, it's also interesting to note if we look back at Acts chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas were vindicated by the leaders and the Judaizers or the false brothers were denounced. Their gospel was not correct. Their gospel was not valid. They were proclaiming a different message. They were making the good news bad news. So freedom in Christ through faith means that we need to partner still in the gospel, but we also partner as we seek harmony in relationships. But the third thing is freedom in Christ through faith implies responsibility in practice. Look at verse 10. It says, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So literally, when grace is at work in our lives, we want to make a difference. Grace makes us act differently. When we've been impacted by the grace of Christ in our life, it, wants, it causes us to want to be a true disciple. It causes us want to shine 
for Christ in our community and in our world. And the leaders in Jerusalem asked that the poor in Jerusalem be remembered by the Gentile churches. And there were a lot of poor believers in Jerusalem in this time because Jerusalem had had a really severe famine and there were really hard economic times, and so they were really struggling. And the Gentile churches, many of them, had much, more, had much greater economic means. And so uh, Peter's saying, hey, don't forget about the poor in Jerusalem. And when the Gentile church would help the poor uh, Jerusalem church, it was an important and it was a significant way for them to demonstrate the oneness that comes through the gospel. Their practical help would convey the truth that literally they were brothers and sisters in Christ. That they still were sharing and partnering in certain aspects of the mission. So if we're going to be established as true partners in this gospel, uh, there's a couple of things we need to be aware of. First is, we need to beware of those, beware of those who choose or try to divide the body of Christ over lesser issues. This is really important. The essentials of the faith are important but the lesser issues become areas where we can, we can talk and maybe we can disagree, but they should not divide us in terms of the body of Christ. In this situation that we're reading about in Galatians 2, it should have been a social matter, and thus it really should have been a fringe matter, and they had made it a core issue. And I would say most of the disagreements uh, are matters really of preference and of style. They're not... They're not, at the core, significant theological differences. They tend to be our own personal preferences, our own desires. So uh, many Christians, when they come into the faith, they think, well, we all ought to think alike. We ought to do the same things. We ought to have the same preferences, the same styles. And so it leads to things where people have conflict over such things like music. What kind of music are we going to listen to? And what kind of music helps us come into the presence of God? Things like, what kind of clothes do we need to wear? Or some groups would disagree over the translations of the Bible that we ought to be reading from. Or, or where we should educate our children. Or, or certain, what, you know, we should vote for certain political parties. All of those things are worth discussing, but they're all down here in terms of the core of the gospel. And we struggle when we elevate them. We say, no, 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 these are priorities. And they're not. The priority is the gospel. It's the gift of salvation. It's the message. It's the mission that God has given to us. That is the the core. That should be the focus. And so uh, we need to be aware of things that would cause us to get divided. Then we also need to recognize in this situation, Paul and the apostles, they came to a place of agreement, right? They were both opposed to the false brothers, to the false message that was being preached uh, to to the Gentiles. And so they successfully sought unity, and, and when they saw that unity, God brought growth to the church. It was like as they were one in the message and one in understanding the mission, God brought growth to the body of Christ. And the second thing is that when we, we can be partners in Christ's freedom, when we have the same gospel, when we, when we celebrate the same Lord, and, and when we have the same spirit, these things are all core to our faith they're all at the center of our faith and so we need to celebrate with those that are that we come in contact with that share the same things the same core essence of faith especially those that have the same gospel the same lord the same spirit for together we really are partners in the gospel of christ in the church when we agree when we have unity we can move forward god can work god can bring growth to the body 
and impact the community when we come together around those things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that come to us about Paul and his willingness to take a stand for our freedom in Christ, that he was willing to say the gospel is the gospel. There's nothing else that needs to be added. There's nothing else that needs to be done. All that we need to do is to accept the gift that Christ has accomplished for us. There is nothing else we need to do. In fact, there is nothing else we can do, Father, to to get this gift. God, help us to continue to focus on the basic message of the gospel, to understand that we are called to share that message in many different ways to many different groups of people. But the calling and the mission is at the heart of what you're doing. So God, help us to continue to focus on the things that are essential to the message and to the mission and the things where we disagree over preference or style. God, help us to remain in harmony in Christ, uh, in the gift of salvation that has come to us. Protect our unity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.